God is good all the time. Good to see you tonight. Welcome to everybody that joins us online and to our CM campus. I've noticed there's generally two types of people in the world. Uh, people whose lives kind of work like small town post offices did in the 40s. There were little compartments all over the place and they put their mail in all these little compartments. Other people's lives kind of work like this. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, how many of you are generally compartmentalized? How many of you just run by the seat of your pants and it all gets bad? All right, there we go. I don't think I could function doing what I do if I weren't compartmentalized. And one of the two compartments I have is I break my life up into professional and personal. Any stressor that would immediately dissipate if I quit my job is professional. All right, great way to think about it, right? Anything stressing you that would go away if you quit your job is professional. Any stressor that would stay with me if I quit my job is personal. I don't think, I don't take most things personally, but I got to tell you, some things do get under my skin. Though I have discovered over the year that I'm relatively hard to offend, I assure you it can be done. People have done it before. I have further noticed that about 99% of the people in the world are a lot easier to offend than I am. So dealing with offended people is a skill set required of all professionals these days, don't you think? Yeah, you're just going to have to deal with offended people. I've been in way too many meetings in my life where someone crossed the line of professionalism and things just tanked. There was a debate of some sort, somebody gets frustrated, someone else begins to emote, and all of a sudden, everything gets personal. You just got to cringe. And I'll sit in those meetings sometimes, <laughs> terrible. And then someone invariably gets offended at something that was said, and now all of a sudden you have a situation that must be addressed. I hate situations that must be addressed. You know, I had a friend I went to high school with. He became a medical chemist. And you, you know, like when you go to the doctor and you, you have to go in a jar and then you give it to someone, he was the guy that got it. And he would run tests to see what was going on there. And he told me about 99% of the time, things would clear up on their own. He said, but the other 1% of the time, if you don't do something, it'll kill somebody. He said, I'm here for the 1% of the time. I, I, I get that. I, I really do get that. I've been in so many situations where, uh, where you, you just had to say, okay, is this the 99% of the time that everything's going to go just fine doing nothing? Or is this that 1% of the time we're going to have to do something? Now, I divide things into two other areas. There's problems to be solved and tensions to be managed. So anything that comes at me, I ask, first of all, is it personal or professional? Then, is it a problem to be solved or a tension to be managed? If you treat a problem to be solved like a tension to be managed, you're going to have disaster. But if you treat a tension to be managed like a problem to be solved, you're going to have a disaster as well. So for me, it's always getting things in 
the right compartment. But somebody is always going to be offended about something. And the reality is, it's usually a tiny group of people who offend everyone. Can I just hear an amen from somebody? They're chronic. And then there's also an equally tiny group of people who always get offended. Right? So you've got this tiny group of people on one side who are the offenders, and then this tiny group of people on this side who are the offendees. <sighs> and when all this kind of happens, you, you end up kind of caught in this, you went over the line and we're all really uncomfortable and somebody's going to have to deal with this. And everybody sits in suspended animation and then they all look at me. I'm supposed to fix it. I'm supposed to fix it. You guys have been in those situations before, haven't you? Some, you're in a meeting or something, everything just kind of <laughs> goes south, and you, you can't go on until you address it. You're just going to have to deal with it, you know? And who's going to do it? You're hoping it's not you. And you hope it's not one of those things, but sometimes you have to deal with things. Since I'm usually in charge of meetings one way or the other, People taking things personally is something to which I always pay attention. I just read the room. And when it happens, and it does, you either have to immediately deal with it or adjourn. But you can't just keep on going if you've got somebody who's really, really offended. And then once you wade into it and address things, the response of all chronic offenders is this, nothing personal. And that just goes over like a lead balloon, doesn't it? I mean, it just goes over horribly. Uh, what they need to say is, I'm so sorry I offended you. That was not my intent. Please accept my humble apology. That's what they need to say. But chronic offenders, it never crosses their mind to say anything of the sort. You know, nothing personal. Why is something so easy to solve with a humble apology so difficult to solve? Why sometimes when we get offended, why do we not accept humble apologies? You want to know what the answer is? Because it's all personal. Everything in life is personal. It's all personal. And we know it. When it comes to our Christian walk, the one thing you can never say is nothing personal. There's nothing more personal than your relationship that we have with God that's made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more personal than the relationships we have with one another. You see, sacred space is personal space. It's, it's a plane that we share not only with God, but we share with each other. Being a pastor clearly has its share of challenging moments. I honestly think I navigate it fairly well, but the stress and strain of it all it takes a toll on me sometimes. I mean, I always tell people, what if my hair isn't jumping ship has turned white? That, that doesn't happen because ministry is so consistently amusing or because you got great genes. One of the most difficult things for me is when people leave the church. I'm not talking about job transfers or moves. I'm talking about when people just quit Christ Church outright. And they fire me as their pastor. No one says that, but that's what happens. 
There can be any number of really good reasons for people leaving a church that have nothing to do with the pastor, but it really doesn't matter. People are letting you know their spiritual development would be better off without you, thanks. And that can hurt, especially when you know you've done your very best, when you care deeply about both the church and the people involved. I know we're a great big church, and I understand I'm not a shepherd, I'm a rancher. I need a lot of shepherds. But I can tell you this, I care deeply about the people here. I care deeply about them. Sometimes I read articles claiming that people are just numbers in large churches. These are all written by people who have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know a pastor's heart. And they really don't know this pastor's heart. You know how on Facebook every now and then you, you, you put something and then it comes back every now and then it just shows up? It's like a really bad meal you ate like eight years ago and then you got heartburn today. It's kind of like that. But every now and then these things will pop up on, on Facebook from, from the past. And, and there's one thing that pops up every two or three years that I wrote probably 15 years ago. I had received notice that a family was leaving the church, and I jotted down my thoughts. And it came up not long ago, and I thought I'd read my post to you. Today, I was informed that a beloved family of this church will be leaving us, not because they're moving, but because they've lost a connection here and feel called to another congregation. I picked up the phone and called them because I had some things I wanted to say. I wanted them to know what an honor it has been to speak into their life over these years. And I wanted them to know how grateful I am for their service here. I wanted to offer my blessing as they go. I wanted to let them know that I will personally miss them. And I wanted to let them know that it should we run into each other at a restaurant or at Walmart, you don't need to go hide in the material section. I also offered to call their new pastor to say what an incredible family he was getting, if that would ever be of help. I was thanked for calling, and they said they were so glad that I did. And when I hung up, I wiped a tear from my eyes, and I took a short walk to compose myself, and then I went back to work, because that's what I do. I go back to work. So you think people are just numbers. They're not to this pastor. Everything's personal, regardless of what we tell ourselves. As we explore our text, keep in mind the humanity and the pastoral heart of Paul. It's real hard to assign warm human emotions to Paul because he feels like a mutant. He's just too relentless, you know, He's just one of those people that's, that just seems wound a little too tight. I don't know a lot about you, but I don't want to be around anyone wound more tightly than me. <laughs> I want to be the most tightly wound person in any group I'm in. Anybody more tightly wound than me drives me insane. No doubt Paul is not someone I wanted to go to lunch with. I, not, not a chance. He just seems a little too wound up. 
But then in these human moments, I start liking Paul. <laughs> you know, I do. I like Paul in his humanity. He just seems like a genuine, warm, caring person, not a religious machine. He's a real person. He cares deeply about his calling, and he cares deeply about those who share in that calling, and he cares deeply about the people to whom he's been called. You see, sometimes we look at Paul and we think he just thinks, writes, and preaches. But he feels, and he grieves, and he loves. And it's in these very human moments that I really like Paul a lot. A lot. Philippians is a personal letter. Paul writes because the people of Philippi are struggling, and because he loves them very, very much, and he feels their pain. As compared with the rest of Philippians, this text seems unduly personal. It kind of feels like it should have been the end, and maybe it was the end, and then he thought of more stuff to say. Have you ever been at the end of something and you think of more stuff to say? There's a temptation to skip over these verses when you read Philippians because there doesn't appear to be enough meat on the bone, but I think that would be a really bad mistake Because I believe that ministry happens within our humanity, not by ignoring it. And in this section, Paul commends two faithful companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul plans to send Epaphroditus back home to Philippi very soon. Timothy will follow later. Timothy is going to be deployed to to follow up to, to report the outcome of Paul's upcoming trial. These verses kind of reminds me of something Melissa used to tell me when I was younger. And she felt like I was getting a little too corporate. And she would always say, Shane, remember that you're in the people business. And you know, it's funny. I don't need reminded of that very much anymore. I feel like I'm getting old and soft in so many ways. But here's the deal. We're all in the people business. The church is in the people business. Verse 19, if the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. Paul and Silas added Timothy to the second missionary journey team just before departing for Greece in a detour in 49 AD. However, Timothy's initial situation was problematic. His mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois, were devout Jews, but his mother had married a Greek, a pagan Greek. Timothy had been raised not strictly Jewish. He had been raised in kind of a a morph kind of situation. Paul had just won a ruling from the Jerusalem council that stated that Gentile converts did not have to be circumcised. But in this time in Paul's ministry, his strategy everywhere he went was to go to the Jewish synagogue in every city he visited. And if he was going to do that, he needed Timothy on the team as a Jew, not on the team as a Gentile. So guess what the proposal was? You can join the team, but you're going to have to be circumcised. Timothy became Paul's prized student, his protege. Timothy had been a valued part of the evangelistic team before Paul's arrest. 
and his prison years, but now he's often deployed to represent Paul personally. Back in those days, sending a messenger to represent someone of significance was very common practice. We, we see that today in, in government. We, we send representatives, envoys, to represent the government. You don't send the president every single place. And so because Paul is incarcerated, he sends Timothy in his place. I do think there's a quiet optimism here. We know that Paul's content to live or content to die. He is waiting a verdict from the emperor on a capital charge. He's okay either way. He's been real clear about that as long as he lives or dies in Jesus. He's convinced the Philippian church is so bought into their mission that Timothy, when he reports the news of Paul's outcome, will bring good news regardless of the news. Paul believes in the church at Philippi, and he is convinced that they will stay on mission and handle themselves well, whether he lives or whether he dies. Have you ever noticed that most people live up or down to what you expect of them? If you want people on your team to fail, just be pessimistic, distrustful, and tell them how horrible they are. They'll fail every time. But if you want your team to succeed, be optimistic, forward-thinking, trusting, and speak words of life to them. Effective Christian leaders create positive, functional, and healthy futures by believing in God and by believing in people. The intent is to send Timothy to Philippi for a visit. Get the news, gather a report, come back to Paul with good news about how well the church is going. How does Paul know the news will be good? He doesn't. He just hopes it will. He believes it will. There's an optimistic impulse in Paul. And I want to suggest to you that no one should be more optimistic than Bible-believing Christians. There is optimism hardwired into our faith. And, and I don't, I, this is, may sound a little crass, but the reality is no, bad, no matter how bad your life goes on earth, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, things are going to look a whole lot better for you in heaven. And there is an optimistic impulse in that. Verses 20 through 24, I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself like a son with his father. He has served me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. That piece didn't work out. It's clear that in sending Timothy to Philippi, Paul isn't just sending a man, he's sending his best man. He's sending his very best guy. Timothy is so far above the others in Paul's estimation that he makes all others seem selfish and insincere by comparison. You need to understand rhetoric back then. This is not intended to put other people down. It's intended to lift Timothy up. It's the highest possible accommodation. So what is the real message? Philippians, your church, and the people in it are so important to me, I'm sending my very best guy. 
there are four unique qualities that make Timothy kind of perfect for the job. So let's take a look at the qualities of Timothy. And as we see maybe God using us or we hope God will use us, these would be four qualities that we would do well to emulate. Number one, love. This was Timothy's first church. He genuinely loved the Philippian church. Christian ministry must be rooted in love, not in feeling, and not in duty, guilt, and obligation. It's got to be rooted in love because love compels us when feeling ebbs and fades, when our sense of duty, guilt, and obligation subsides temporarily. Love's the only thing that keeps us going. Are you serving God in, in some way? Are you discouraged? You say, well, why should I go on? I've got a great reason. Love. Love's why you should go on. Love's why you should hang in there. You say, I don't really feel like it. Who cares about how you feel? Who cares? Love. Love. You say, well, I'm just, I just don't feel like I have to do this. Of course you don't have to do it. The question is, did God ask you to do it? And if he did, the question is, are you going to be obedient to him? Love. Qualities of Timothy, he's motivated by love. If we are fueled by love, our ministry will take a very different form and attitude than if we're driven by anything else. Number two, courage. Timothy had stuck with Paul through his trials, his tribulations, his beatings, his imprisonments. Let's just be real honest. If you read about Paul, Paul's not a great guy to travel with. I mean, he's really not. He's not a great guy to travel with. I had a friend in high school, uh, and no matter where we went, he was going to get in a fight. Didn't matter where. And so when he called and asked if I wanted to do something, the question I had to ask myself is, do I want to get in a fight? Or try to get out of a fight because that was just what was going to happen with this guy. It's just how he was geared. You know, a lot of times I told him I had other things to do. You know, I need to stay home and tend to my dog. I didn't have a dog, but I wasn't going to do that. I mean, to go with this guy, it just kind of took a little bit of courage. To hang around Paul took some courage. You know, hey, come with me. What are you going to do? We're going to visit multiple cities. We'll start off. Things will probably go well, and then there'll be a riot. We'll get incarcerated. We'll probably be beaten to a pulp. They may never let us go. They may try to stone us, and then we'll run out of town undercover at night and do it all over again. Hard pass. But Timothy had courage. When things got tough, he, he didn't get scared and run home like John Mark did in the first missionary journey. And who could blame John Mark? Timothy had proven that he cared more about the mission of Christ and his calling than he did about his own well-being. And you had to have that piece if you go hang out with Paul. Paul said that Timothy and he are like-minded. And he trusted Timothy completely. I had a friend who was a pastor a while back and and everywhere he went, it was just high, high, high drama, and things went terrible. Everywhere he went, you know. And, and I, we were having a conversation one day, and he looked at me, and he said, would your staff take a bullet for you? And I said, 
my idea of good leadership is that they wouldn't have to. I said, does your staff know that your metaphor isn't metaphorical? When I really think about this, following Jesus does take courage. And I'm going to suggest to you it takes more courage than it did 20 years ago. And if you're young, you're just going to take my word for it. It's hard to follow Jesus in a culture that radiates at such high frequencies against everything that traditional Christians have always believed. You have to have courage. Paul says that he and Timothy are like-minded. He, he trusted Timothy completely. He knew Timothy was going to have his back. He knew he wasn't going to run out. If you've got a friend like that, you've got a good thing. And let me just give you a little word of warning. The time to make a friend like that is not when things are going bad. The time to make a friend like that is when things are going good. Paul trusted Timothy. Number three, loyalty. Paul's mentioned hundreds of, mentored hundreds of Christian leaders, but Timothy's now his closest friend. Decades ago, a pastor by the name of Jim Sloan took me under his wing and for many years served as a key mentor in my life. And one day, after I'd been here about 10 years, Jim called me up and he asked me to go to lunch and took me to the hill. And we went, we were about halfway through lunch. He goes, I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay. He said, I don't want to be your mentor anymore. It's okay. He said, I just want to be your friend. I just want to be your friend. It was one of the most profound conversations of my life. And now that I've been a mentor to a lot of people, it's a conversation I've had with other people. I just want to be your friend. Paul did that with Timothy. He was his mentor, but Timothy became his friend, his, his ministry partner. Number four, Timothy had experience now. He, he's been on the front lines for a decade. He's not just watching from the sidelines, reading books. And Paul can trust even the most difficult aspects of his mission to Timothy. And it's clear that even though Paul has purchased a ticket to Greece for Timothy, he's not going to depart until the legal situation is determined. Why? Because trips were uncertain and dangerous in those times. And trips involving ships were even more dangerous. With Timothy... Unavailable, someone else from the team needed to take this letter that is Philippians and deliver it to the church at Philippi. It was 600 miles plus north, a little bit east, inner Epaphroditus. Verse 25. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He's a true brother, co worker, and a fellow soldier. He was your messenger to help me in my need, and I'm sending him. Because he has been longing to see you. And he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But Paul, but God had mercy on him and so on me. So that I would not have one sorrow after another. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you. For I know you will be glad to see him. And then I will not be so worried about you. In the Roman Empire, prisoners were only kept until trial. They may execute you, whip you, beat you to a pulp, or let you go, but they're not normally going to keep people incarcerated indefinitely 
at state expense simply because they can't behave themselves. The exception to that is if you're a political threat. Then they'll keep you on ice for a long time. But any extras beyond a bare cell and bad food could be purchased, like add-ons. And they could be provided by friends and family. The idea was really simple. If you want to make trouble for the Roman Empire, but don't want to live in squalor, the inconvenience will be yours and the people who love you, but upgrades are for sale. Epaphroditus was commissioned by the Philippian church to deliver funds to support Paul's prison stay and to personally serve him there until the outcome of the trial was known. But the trial date kept getting pushed back. We know nothing about Epaphroditus other than he is named after the goddess Aphrodite, so we can infer that he's a converted Gentile serving on a temporary mission. You see, sometimes God calls people like Paul and Timothy to give their professional lives to his service. But for most of you, you may just be called to a few short-term ministries here and there throughout your life, like Epaphroditus. It would have been expected that Epaphroditus would return home only after Paul's trial had been concluded. But the wheels of justice were turning slowly in Paul's complicated case. And in the meantime, Epaphroditus had become ill and almost died. We don't know the malady, If I'm guessing, typhoid or malaria. Always good guesses. Once recovered, Paul was determined to send him back so he didn't relapse. And clearly, Paul doesn't want him to die on his watch. So to be sure that Epaphroditus doesn't go home in shame, a commendation letter for good service is necessary. Epaphroditus is going to carry this letter. And it's interesting, he calls Epaphroditus an apostle, apostolos. It literally means someone on an errand, but the word had significantly more meaning within the early church. It really came to mean one on an errand from God. In fact, Paul often called himself an apostle. And now he bestows this title on Epaphroditus. Paul next uses a military metaphor of a courageous soldier to describe Epaphroditus' service to the Philippians, certainly writing to the inhabitants of a Roman colony that was essentially founded by retired soldiers, would encourage the metaphor. But what Paul's really doing is reminding the church there, Epaphroditus and I have been to war together, and he nearly gave his life up for the cause. He's reminding those who have offered some service to the Lord that there are those who have offered above the call of duty service to the Lord, and they deserve respect. Verse 29 and 30, welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy, and give him the honor that people like him deserve, for he risked his life for the work of Christ. He was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. The Greek word translated risk utterly fascinates me. It it refers to a high-stakes gambler, a high-stakes gambler. And it was a common word used for wanton recklessness. The idea communicated here is that while some foolishly gamble their lives for adventure or conquest, Epaphroditus courageously gambled his life for the great cause of Christ, and he nearly lost 
We further know the word picked up another connotation in time. By the third century, the word came to refer to Christian medical missionaries who went into cities that were engulfed in the plague. And their presence as they cared for sick people and put their own lives at risk. They were high-stake gamblers for Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is always in need of a few risk-takers, people willing to risk their life. They are the special forces of the faith who God deploys for the most dangerous and difficult of tasks. Paul did not condemn the church at Philippi for not being there with him. He is grateful for their care and their concern and their financial report or support. He just wants to make sure they honor Epaphroditus. So let's do a really quick recap, and then let's wrap this up. Here's what we learn forging from Philippi. Number one, the gospel is personal. It's deeply personal. Number two, we are in the people business. We're in the people business. Jesus died for people. How's that? Number three, think optimistically. Just tap into that Christian side of you. Christians need to be more optimistic. If we were, I think we'd be better witnesses. Can I just hear an amen from somebody? I think if we were more optimistic, we'd be better, more effective witnesses. Number three, four, embrace the mission. Embrace it. Christ church exists to connect people with Jesus Christ. Help us do that. Embrace it. Help us do that. Number five, many callings are short term. Not everything is forever, and that's okay. I know in a lot of small churches, like somebody will be asked to be a children's Sunday school teacher. And when I was a pastor in a small church, I asked somebody, would you be a children's Sunday school teacher? They said, oh, no. And I said, well, I get it, but why? They said, well, if you ever say yes to somebody in this church, you got the job for life. And I said, well, how about if we just kind of come up with a contract? You know, do this for a year. And let me know if it's uh, connecting with you. Not all calls are forever, and that's okay. Maybe you were really involved in a ministry, and, and for whatever reason, you're not as involved. Guys, that's okay. You don't need to sit and beat yourself up over that. We don't all have to do the same thing. We don't all have to do what we used to do, but we all should be doing something. Number five, be respectful to those called to difficult ministries. Just show them a little bit of respect. You know, Regardless of how hard somebody may or may not think my job is, I, I know people who minister in inner city and in places where there is rural poverty like you would not believe, and they have really hard lives. They're really hard lives. I have so much respect and so much honor that I offer to them. Just, just be respectful those that are called the difficult things, come a little slack. If, if God didn't call them, he might make you do it. Number seven, serve faithfully where you are. A lot of times we think we'd be really effective if we were just somewhere else. Wrong. If you can't bloom where you're planted, you're probably not going to bloom anywhere else either. So find a way to be effective where you are. You know what kind of employees that really do well here? Employees that come and work for us that liked their previous job, 
You want to know who doesn't do well? People who hated their previous job and the one before that and the one before that and the one before that because they're going to hate this job too. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. Just serve faithfully where you are. Is everything going to go your way? No. You like everything? No. Be faithful. Put a smile on your face, a little pep in your step. Get a little sparkle in your eye. Add a little energy to things. Go better. Promise. It'll go better. Being a disciple of Jesus will cost you everything. When Jesus was asked about joining his team, he replied in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Are you ready to offer yourself fully to God? Before you answer, I have to warn you that it'll put you at risk. It'll put you squarely in the people business with all of its messiness. If you say yes to discipleship, you're going to have to learn to let Jesus love others through you and put God's mission ahead of your own agenda. Be prepared to get your hands dirty, brace for occasional persecution, and serve God even if it calls for great sacrifice. When you say yes to God, you put the values of the kingdom ahead of your own values. When you do that, you become a decorated soldier in the Lord's army. Like Timothy and Epaphroditus. As a kid in Bible school, we used to sing about the Lord's army. That's back before they demilitarized things. But we, you know, I may never march in the infantry. I mean, we we were at it when we were kids. Uh, But I'm in the Lord's army. You know what? We are a part of God's army. And soldiers and armies don't exist for the comfort of the soldiers. That'd be the entertainment industry. Armies exist for the mission of a nation. And when we join the Lord's army, we do not exist for our own comfort. We exist to perpetuate the mission of Jesus Christ in this world. I'd like to close with something called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. It first appeared in covenant meetings held by John Wesley in 1775. And it's going to ring pretty true today as we close with this. So I'd like to close just by opening up our hearts and joining with Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus by offering our full selves to God and our full selves to his people. Would you pray with me? Let's pray this together. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and thy disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it and the covenant which I have made on earth. Let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. And nothing is more personal than that.